Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Good morning. Welcome to another episode of Awkward Sex in the City. And you know what? I don't know if it's morning for you right now. It's either Wednesday morning or afternoon or Thursday or whenever you're listening three weeks from now. I don't know. But I just want to say thank you for coming. That sounded like a sarcastic thank you. I just have like a naturally sarcastic voice. I really mean that. Like, thank you. Um, I was told this weekend that numbers jumped up in November uh, for downloads and stuff by like a lot. So uh, I'm always humbled, but also it's like stroking my ego at the same time. So humbly stroking my ego. Thank you so, so much. We do have a guest today. Uh, I sit down with Jillian Wallace Horvat of the filmmaker of I Blame Society. And Jillian is just so cool, so funny, so intelligent. And I'm not going to say much about the movie I Blame Society because I think I'm really bad about explaining movies and just giving away major details and I know most people don't like spoilers I personally do and I watched this movie with no spoilers too and like I felt um very anxious in like in like a the way the movie's supposed to make you feel type of way and I was like oh right it's fun to watch movies and not know <laughs> not know what's gonna happen um it was a lot and like we talk a lot about mostly about the Me Too movement and and what has changed and what hasn't changed in Hollywood, you know, uh, as, you know, as Jillian being a filmmaker. And it's a really interesting conversation. Uh, So glad that she, you know, made time to sit down with me. And I Blame Society is going to be available on demand and cable on demand everywhere on February 12th and is currently in virtual theaters across the country. And again, it's fucking great. I loved it. I was at the edge of my seat, and uh, I think you're going to like it, too. Um, I don't know where you guys live. Uh, it snowed a lot in New York City yesterday. We're having, we're going to get a lot of snow this week. I'm super excited. Uh, we were out in the snow, like, for five hours yesterday, so if you can't tell, that is why I sound stuffy. Um, hashtag thank you, snow. And, you know, it was just fucking beautiful, and I hope you got to get some beautiful snow. Like, last Monday was a shit ton of snow, but it was a blizzard. Um, and this time you could like be outside and not be like pelted with like ice uh, in your face and just really appreciate it. And just, I hope you guys are, you know, doing okay. You know, cases are going down. Uh, they're still not as low as they were back in October, but, um, ooh, I don't know. Um, <laughs> uh, we're just, you know, we're chugging along, doing our best. And I hope you're just, you know, taking care of yourselves and I hope you love this episode and I hope you go and, um, Go watch, go download I Blame Society by filmmaker Jillian Wallace Horda. All right, I'll see you guys on the next side. So I just finished I Blame Society. Uh, it's fucking amazing. Oh, thank you. 
And I was so excited to get to talk to you today because I don't know if you saw, but like Emily in Paris has gotten Golden Globe nominations, but I this may destroy you, didn't? Well, I don't know very much about the Golden Globes, but I do know that their their voting body like skews a certain way demographically. <laughs> and so I think that it definitely is is plain to their taste. Although it's interesting, my mother is of the same age and ethnicity persuasion of most of the Golden Globe voters, and she fucking hates Emily in Paris. Good, because it's fucking awful. I mean, I watched every episode because you had to. <laughs> But it's, oh, it's so bad. You know, it's interesting is she thought it was worse than the Sex and the City episodes in Paris, which are the worst episodes of the whole show. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting. She kind of, she, she was like, <laughs> she didn't identify with Emily because she's always taking pictures of herself. <laughs> oh, okay. Okay. I mean, fair. And she all. She also doesn't really understand what Emily does and how she's always solving a crisis by getting people on her phone. She like she kind of just didn't get the social media aspect of it, but she also thought the dialogue was stupid. Um, but she liked Lily Collins a lot, which I think is a good sign. I like her too. I like her a lot. I um I do like her, but I got very mad when I figured out that she is Phil Collins' daughter. I don't know why I love Phil Collins. You, you don't like I love Phil Collins, too. I love Phil Collins, but I was just like, for some reason, I had this like, oh, nepotism moment, Um, even though she's not a singer or anything. Like, it's just, I don't know. It's just like, you're Phil Collins' daughter. And I love, I I love Phil Collins. I think he's great. I think he's better than Peter Gabriel. I agree. A hard agree. (laughs) I I think that, you know, I, I agree that it probably helped her to overcome a lot of barriers to entry. It gave her a lot of connections that somebody else with her looks and talent wouldn't have, but I don't think she's, I think in other ways she hasn't benefited. I think she's been under a microscope in that sense. And she really, she really does have the talent. And from what I understand, I think that she, I don't think she really grew up with her father. I think they, like her parents got divorced and she grew up in the States and he was in Britain. I think it's something there's, you know, it's, it's not like, um, she was a total daddy's girl and just riding his coattails. Okay. I didn't know that much about them. Okay. Cool. That makes me feel better about her. <laughs> but I did find, like, I mean, I'm shocked to see that This May Destroy You didn't get any nods um, or nominations because, and it reminded me of I Blame Society so much because it was, like, here's a story that, like, will people let be told? Is this a story mm-hmm. like the whole thing is like, well, were people ready for this may destroy you? And it's like, that doesn't matter. Like, it's it was great. It's beautiful. Well done. Well written. Well acted. And like the same with I Blame Society. Well written. Well done. Very interesting. Was that a real uh, compliment someone gave you? I was a little confused yeah. on that. OK. OK. Did it fuck with you a little bit? No, I just. um I enjoy compliments, no matter like <laughs> what they are. If somebody tells me if that I'm good at something, it 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 makes me feel good. I get like an endorphin rush. It doesn't matter what it's at. That I I'm the same way. Praise me all day, every day. Um, yeah, it had Gone Girl vibes of like, and the, like the type of um critique it got was like, I don't. Is this like a type of woman we want to see on the screen, or like we never get to see women play characters like that? 
I mean, I'm such a huge fan of Gone Girl. Actually, it was my co-writer, Chase Williamson, who is also in the film. He introduced me to the book and uh, and the film. And I love that movie. And I love that character. I love how I love how smart she is and how it still doesn't make her happy. Mm-hmm. I, I I love that she she wins and at the same time it's so cruel, you know? Mm-hmm. I, I think the the whole film is just brilliant tonally, top to bottom. And I think I mean her performance is fantastic. I don't know. In a lot of ways I think that um I think Amy's a role model for for a lot of women just in the sense of not putting up with crumbs mm-hmm. with seeing a problem that seems intractable and looking for a solution that actually that actually works. Yeah, absolutely. And that's kind of what I felt with I blame society too. Like I love that she had this goal and no matter what people thought, it was just going to happen. And uh, the whole time I was watching the movie, I guess in like the first half, I was like, oh, I don't think she's ever going to like really kill someone. Spoilers, guys. And then so when it does like switch into that, I was like, it was very seamless. It was very like, um, it was just so smooth that for a second, I thought it was fake. Like I thought she was filming fake um, killings. And then I was like, oh, no, no, like this is her. This is like really. This is it when she has like, but my favorite real quick is the beauty montage. Uh, Mm -hmm. That was, that was chef's kiss. That was perfect. Well, I'm glad that you, I'm glad that you felt that way. And I'm glad that it felt to you like there was some slippage between the narrative and the documentary and you weren't sure like what was real or where it was going. I, I think that as for an audience is like more suspenseful and more like mentally engaging to play along with, you know? Yeah. When you made, like, so when you made the movie, when you started bringing it up with people, were their reactions, like, similar to what was in the movie? Um, no. I mean, the, we never went out and pitched this movie, really, because it was kind of a, making this movie was kind of a response to, between me and my producers, to how difficult it was to get this other project off the ground. Um, I, we had this other project we were working on, and there was a shocking amount of resistance to it. And I think that there's a, you know, part of it was because it was a very edgy project, but the other part was, you know, was, was just, it wasn't adding up. It was one of those things where, you know, I was coming off of um, two shorts that had played South by Southwest, one which had won the jury award in the midnight short section. and. I had seen a lot of male directors who didn't have that level of experience or um, credibility getting first features made at budgets that I just couldn't imagine. And it just, it wasn't adding up why it was happening for these men and it wasn't happening for these women. And in the responses we would get to, to my material, there was also something, you know, actually coming from both men and women, but um, a feeling of, social policing in the sense of like, are these really the kind of stories that we want women to tell? Meaning that there are certain stories that women are meant to tell and some that there aren't. And to me, um, that's not really feminism. That's, you know, uh, 
you know, really equality is like women should be able to tell stories that have nothing to do with their personal experience, like, you know, science fiction or, um, you know, stories told for with a, a male protagonist, you know, like, like American Psycho, you know, but there's just this feeling that, you know, without a, a marketability aspect of hiring a female director, because there's a relation to the material, there's really no point to hiring a female director, you know, unless you're making a film about abortion or with like, a, you know, certain kind of female lead at the center who is, you know, a constant victim or something like that, they're, you know, you might as well just, you know, get a guy to get the job done. And it's definitely a, a a kind of bias in the industry that you know the a male director is normative so uh, the way i blame society kind of came out of that was that was just kind of our our feeling and our anger and our confusion and which you know often leads to satire and then i had coincidentally a couple of years ago um made that short documentary, which was based on the compliment that my friends gave me that I would make a good murderer. So I was kind of talking to my managers about that in the sense of who are my, also my producers and like saying, Oh, you, I made this project, you know, uh, I never finished it, but you know, you, I just made it cause I'm just such a maniac. And they were like, well, you know, like it sounds interesting. Let's see it. I was like, yeah, it's not that great, but they watched it and they really loved it. And so we talked about how easy it would be to finish it as a narrative where it starts off with the documentary stuff of, you know, me playing myself and being a filmmaker who gets told that she would make a good murderer. And then the events of her life are so frustrating professionally that it compels her to start killing people and using that as a way to, to satirize the hypocrisy within the film industry right now and saying that, you know, Me Too has fixed everything and, um, you know, there's space for women now, but in fact, women are just being held in the, in the same pens and cages that they were being held in before in turn artistically, of course, not in real life. Yeah. And I think that's a really good thing to talk about too, because I, I, a lot of times I do think people think it's like, oh, we fixed it. The hashtag fixed it. And obviously no. And yesterday, um, again, now I'm blinking on her name. She just passed away, but she was a very famous producer at the helm of like Friends, Happy Endings, Frasier. But she was like held to this weird standard of uh, of um, misogyny and sexism. And she ended up re resigning, I think retiring from it because she just didn't want to have to deal with that constant battle. She potentially blamed someone or allegedly blamed someone for sexual harassment to get out of a contract and also might not even be true or or was like exaggerated. And everyone was just like after that happened, after she got out of the contract, everyone was like, oh, she'll just do whatever it takes to get what she wants. And it's like, but how many male producers, directors owners of things have done that and it's not a problem. And so it was like really, it's a very interesting New York Times article and I'm, I can't believe I'm forgetting her name again. Um, she's a great producer, but it's like, when does it end? Like, how does it get fixed? How, and especially like being in it, like how fucking frustrating is that to constantly have to deal with like constant separate battles of not just 
getting through the getting the green light for this idea. But again, having people being like, is this a story that we want to tell? Do we want to have a female pr- a director? Do we want this like female gaze? Like there's just so many things happening at once. Like that's got to be exhausting. I mean, I think there's a lot of, of there's a lot of, I think everybody who's involved in this movement has really good intentions. Um, but I think that a lot of people are working at, at cross purposes and I, certain elements of it kind of get co-opted by the media cycle and don't serve the actual movement. And, but those are the elements that are the most consumable. And so I think the really difficult part that, you know, we're talking about of actual change on the ground and getting more opportunities for women rather than removing some toxic men that has been pushed to the wayside because people don't know how to how to consume that in in a social media age and in a media age where everything is commoditized you know we don't know how to i don't know once they learn how to how to market that and make a lot of money off of it and it makes them feel really comfortable it'll all get fixed i mean money is the only way to solve the problem yeah I don't know, like women are, are really the outliers and, um, you know, and people of color, of course. Yeah, absolutely. Not to switch up a little bit, but is there anything currently that you're working on? Yeah, I'm can't go into like too much detail, but I'm developing a TV project right now and hopefully I'll start go out pitching that super soon. Um, and then I've been writing some stuff for myself. Um, but yeah, I've been uh, I've been working on a baseball script lately, and I've been really enjoying writing. That's super cool. The reason I asked if you were working on anything new, it was just because um, are you seeing again the same issues as like with the last um, the 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 project that inspired I Blame Society that was like getting a lot of pushback. I'm not seeing it as much right now, although I, I haven't gone out with anything, so I'm not. Um, I'm not subject to like random criticism at the moment, but I've been having a lot of people reach out to me recently with job opportunities. Um, and that's been really nice. And I think that's the, that's the removal of the first time feature filmmaker stigma, you know, which is something that keeps a lot of, and of women and people of color from actually having careers as you know, it's, um, there's so many catch 22s in, in the field and in other fields, but you know, one of them is really like, you can't direct a first feature unless you've already done one, you know, because nobody wants to hire a director who hasn't done it before. And it's, it's funny because I feel like the difference between directing shorts and features is it's just like, you have to have more endurance, but basically it's the same thing. You make your pages every day. It's just, there's more days. You can shop from anywhere doing pretty much anything. You might shop while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast. And however you shop, we all know and love the thrill of the hunt. But do you also know how to get the thrill of the best deals? Because Rakuten shoppers do. With Rakuten, they get the deals they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Sephora, Nike, and even Expedia if you're looking to get some travel in. 
And getting cash back doesn't mean you have to miss out on sales because those can just be stacked right on top. It's easy to use and based on a simple idea. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers and Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back through PayPal or check. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Do you like science fiction? I'm Carrie Bechet, and if you loved movies like Arrival or Interstellar, then you're going to want to check out my podcast, Hypothetical. On Hypothetical, we tell speculative sci-fi stories interwoven with real science. New episodes every Tuesday, available wherever you get podcasts. When you like first got into film, uh, or when did you want to? How old were you when you're like, I want to do this. I want to be a director. I guess I. I mean, I was in high school, and I don't know how I. It's I. I don't know if there's a, any point where I realized that this is what I wanted to do. It was kind of a. Actually, it was a disillusionment from theater. I'd been doing a lot of theater and taking it really seriously and like writing, directing, acting, all of it. And, uh, you know, doing like special intensive camps all over the world. And, you know, just um, theater was my passion. But then I got really sad about it. Um, and I hated the, I hated how much uh, office politics played a part in it. I mean, I'm sure it's that, it's that way in every field, but in theater, it's really, um, it's really pernicious because getting cast has so much to do with um, personal relationships. And I mean, I'm, we're talking about like a high school setting. Like if you didn't, if you didn't suck up to the right people, you know, you weren't getting a part no matter whether you could sing and the person who got it couldn't, you know, mm -hmm. it was the director, you know, there, there's such ego in these things that they'd rather like put somebody that they like up on stage for rehearsals for four months and let them not, you know, sing terribly for like three nights, you know? Yeah. And I guess I eventually figured out the obvious, which is that film is a lot like theater, except you don't have to rely on actors all the time. <laughs> and so I liked that I could take the skill set that I was building and then there was this whole other aspect, the craft of filmmaking and the visual language of storytelling that could come in and be a tool so I wouldn't always be relying on actors. So, I mean, also, to, you know, to, to augment their performance, to give a counterpoint to a performance. Uh, it's everything that you're doing directing with theater, but with a lot more creativity. Of course, what's lacking is, you know, the electricity of having a live audience, but there's a lot of other stuff that compensates for that, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I guess I asked because uh, when I realized I wanted to be a comedian, um, I think I was like high school too. And I was just kind of like, oh, you know what? Like it's, It'll be fine. Like the sexism won't get in the way. Things will have changed by then. Or like, I'll fix it. Like I had this very naive, like, oh, it'll be fine. I'll like break waves or make waves and it'll be totally fine. And like, so obviously Awkward Sex and City is about sex. It's about something uh, that a lot of people don't like to have the female gaze on or just 
any gaze that is in the male gaze. And I definitely have like a lot of pushback and a lot of things uh, hit me in my face. I guess I guess I'm asking, were you as like naive as I was? I guess <laughs> if that makes sense. I mean, I definitely had experienced uh, sexism, you know, as you know, uh, you start as as a woman, you know, you you experience it somehow, and like uh, you know, early interactions with family and educators and people just trying to um, force you to stay in your lane and to. Um, exhibit what they call appropriate behavior. If you look at all of my report cards from like kindergarten up, my every everything has a note on it that I exhibit inappropriate behavior. <laughs> and it's not because I'm like, you know, I was a child pervert or anything. It was because I had a very open mouth and I, a very open dialogue with uh, what I was thinking. And I just didn't understand that I couldn't express any and all questions that I had to anybody at, at any given moment. Um, I, I think, I, I don't know, it's probably the flip side of being really precocious and intellectually curious is, you know, you are wanting the answers to questions and you know um sex has such a an aura around it as we're growing up is something taboo and subversive and i've always been attracted to those subjects so yeah i don't know i also feel like in third grade it was a very hot house sexual environment as well where everybody <laughs> was really discussing a lot of sexual topics at the lunch table um I remember this girl, I think Catherine Schrader, she asked me if I knew what sex was. And I said, I think so, but you know, I'm not really sure if you just want to you know, like run it by me one more time. She took a, <laughs> a banana and a, a cup of yogurt and demonstrated it. Damn. Okay. Wow. You're right though. Yeah. I mean, we, it's, Sex is so taboo, but it is immediately, uh, we are like immediately exposed to it. Um, and as a babysitter since I was 13, I can definitely say seven, eight year olds are talking about it. I even talked to a mom about it once and I was like, oh yeah, your son's talking about this. And she was like, no, no. And I was like, no, he definitely is. Like, at least to me and his friends, like I hear this and I think it's totally fine. Like, of course, this is like something that's going to be a part of our lives for the rest of our lives. Like, just, you know, give them give them the facts. Um, but it is also very interesting of how I remember being a kid and I would get, you know, I was not someone that talked up. I was not someone I was always way, way too shy. And so on my report cards, it was like, perfect. She's perfect. She doesn't talk and she gets great grades. Perfect. <laughs> when that's not who I was, like outside of the classroom but it was just like it felt like I almost already knew to like play the rules to get by but then like you become an adult and you're just like oh now I'm so confused I want to speak up but I was taught that's not how to get my way or how to get that like a plus grade when that doesn't exist anymore um and like you too I am very I'm very attracted to like taboo subjects especially for anyone who's not a man. So like, I love talking about sex and I love talking about poop. And I talk about those on stage a lot and it's very polarizing and people will be like, you should not be doing this when it's something that like 
we literally all experience. It's like such a universal topic. But it also seems like it's such a, you know, a, a well-trod and path for comedians to go for, you know, offensive, quote, subject matters, you know, things that are transgressive and will get a reaction. And, 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 you know, it's not even like, I mean, like you said, you know, sex and, and pooping are universal. So I don't, this, the shame of, you know, bringing up those subjects, which also are, you know, talked about on, you know, NBC sitcoms. I had, it's, it's surprising that it still exists. I could understand if you were making jokes about, you know, necrophilia or euthanasia <laughs> or something, then I think you, I, I could see a bit more pushback, but what you're talking about, I guess it's like, you know, what we were bringing up before, which is social policing. And I think that there's definitely men who do it and do it constantly. But in my experience in my career, actually, some of the most virulent and rageful uh, social policing I've received has come from women. I think it's that kind of model minority mentality, Mm. even though we're not really the minority where it's like, you're making us look bad. You know, we've, we've, we're just barely getting our foot in the door. And then, and then you want to ruin it with your, your crudeness and your vulgarity and your, and your boundary pushing when, you know, women can come before you to, to break the glass ceiling. They've really had to bite their tongue and sacrifice. And this is, and this is what you do. You can't play your part. And no, I'm going to do it my way. And I, and I hope that people get angry. I hope that's definitely, I don't want to, I never intend to hurt anybody with my work. I never, I never want to make anybody like cry or feel bad. Um, but I'm absolutely fine if they're angry at me because I think that's healthy. Yeah. I'm not totally averse to conflict and confrontation and I'm, I'm absolutely fine with that. Yeah. And that angry is, anger is good, right? Cause like the opposite of love isn't hate, it's indifference, right? You don't want someone to feel indifferent to what you're doing. You want to create a reaction, uh, cause then people are talking about it and then you can, you can make progress. You can break barriers with individual people that way but you have a really good point because i remember me too happened well me too got big in 2016 right Mm -hmm. yeah um and yeah a lot of like a lot of middle-aged women were very like not into it of just like this attitude of like well i went through it so why can't you guys and it's like but we're just saying you shouldn't have and we don't want to and the future can't go through that. Like that's not like it's not fair to them. Well, I think they felt judged by that. I think they felt like, uh, you know, somebody was accusing them of not having done enough, of having put up with too much, of, of being weak, and not having recognized their struggle and 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 what they endured and how they managed to make things happen. I think we definitely have to respect the previous generation of women and all the strides that they made because they certainly normalized women in the workplace and in the last generation in a way that, you know, wasn't there the generation before. And, you know, we couldn't have gotten to where we are without them. It's just, um, yeah, it would be great if we weren't working at cross purposes because, you know, they expected some kind of 
hagiographic adulation of everything that had come before and not the fact that we're always building on what came before. And that means critique as well as admiration. Yeah, absolutely. And that makes me think about, um, I don't know if that makes sense, but it makes me think about Kiss Kiss Finger Bang, which you won South by Southwest. Uh, the Midnight, what's the Midnight? Um, yeah, the Midnight Shorts Award. The Midnight Shorts Award. It's hilarious. It's great. It's very, you know, sexed up, which I love. Like, And that makes me wonder, like, did you again get pushback? Were people weird about it? Or were people cool with the sex part because it was in a like, kind of in a medium that they were comfortable with. I don't think I could have made that if I wasn't friends with everybody who was involved <laughs> in it. If it was like, a, I've got this idea and I need to like find people who will help me out with it, then it wouldn't have happened. But I had the idea and I wrote the the short and I immediately thought of, of Kate, um, the lead actor, Caitlin Scheel, uh, because I was like, I just, uh, I just hung out with her and I was like, God, you know, she's so funny. She has such a dry sense of humor and it breaks my heart that she is just always doing parts where she is like crying and freaking out because, you know, she has, I mean, obviously that's uh, a very, a lot of difficult places to go for an actor, but she has a lot of range. So it would be amazing if people could see that she could do that. And, you know, you know, she's a, a wonderful comedian. Um, and then, so she read it and didn't, and loved it and didn't say anything like, you know, oh, you know, um, how are you going to handle the, you know, the sex parts? Like, what are we going to do? Like, she was just very supportive and trusted me. And we'd known each other since we worked at Kim's video back in the day, a long time ago. And then when I, I told, I was hanging out with Anton Yelchin, the, who plays the, male lead in the film I told him that she was in it and what the idea was and he actually said well can I be in it amazing <laughs> I was like this is this is great because I don't know if I would have had the nerve to ask him to like you know just do a short but he asked to do it and he wanted he wanted to act with her he thought she was great and he didn't want to feel left out and he loved the idea and then it was it was really easy to have more friends come together and and there was no shaming in the sense apparently there was behind the scenes i later heard about a grip that i didn't know made some comments to our art director but she totally shut him down wow and um but i never heard about it until later what do you mind uh what what did he say oh it was really benign he was just like he he said to the art director, he was like, isn't this the weirdest set that you've ever been on before? And um, this friend who's my art director said, no, because I've never been on a set before. I hired her because she's a great artist and um, she, but she never art directed, but she art directed the shit out of that. She's fucking amazing. Yeah. I love like it's the set's great. That fucking red couch. I love it. That is my friend's red couch. Yeah. It's beautiful. It's so good. Um, well, I'm actually really happy to hear that it was so supportive. Because um, I was like, oh, I love this. I love this. I love everything about it. And then in my back of my mind, I was like, because I watched it after I blamed society. So I was like, oh, shit, like, did this have a lot of pushback? 
or did this like just was this hard to make? And I got like nervous for you. It's very it's a very polarizing short. Um, you know, my current managers, producers decided to work with me on the basis of that short because they loved it so much. And they're both women. On the other hand, I've been, you know, publicly censured at film festivals by women for making that film because I think it's very you know, our reactions to sex are very personal. And I think people project experiences that it reminds them of in ways that they, they get very emotional, but they're really, in some ways, they're ignoring the film and the, the plot events and the character motivations and just kind of seizing on something much more interior and, and primal about how the film makes them feel. And the film kind of oscillates between stages of humor and suspense and eroticism that I think juggling those feelings can make people feel vulnerable and uncomfortable. Me, I love feeling vulnerable and uncomfortable when I watch a movie. I feel that's why I watch movies to to safely enter those vulnerable emotional states and to have a catharsis. But I think some people are more sensitive and, you know, the, you know, they, they need trigger warnings for, for everything. And, and there's no shame in that, but it just means that their response to, to art is so personal that it elides a lot of the, the artistry and the, the controversy and the ambivalence and ambiguity that a good director brings to screen. The way you describe why you watch film is so beautiful. And I, right now, just because of COVID, like we're watching so much stuff that there's so many times where I will like turn to my partner and be like, I need to watch something where I can completely zone out uh, or I need to, it needs to make me smile or it needs to make me feel this way. Uh, but lately, we've been watching a lot of like 1980s stuff. Like we just watched uh, her theater, uh, All That Jazz, and I'd never seen it. Um, and we saw a Cabaret earlier. And I just I didn't really know much about Bob Fosse, but it was very I was like, oh, I'm feeling things like I love this. And it's weird. Uh, I'm assuming you've seen it. Yeah, yeah. I love All That Jazz. It is so like. It's got like one of the great finales in the sense of like, it just kind of yes. wanders off and does its own thing. I was thinking about it the other day because I watched, um, I'm thinking of ending things. Um, I always watch things like seven months later than everybody else, but I, I <laughs> really enjoyed, I'm thinking of ending things because I, I was really underwhelmed by the book, to be honest. And I thought the movie just did so much creatively with a very boilerplate source material. And it reminded me so much of the ending of all that jazz because it kind of wanders off into they they both wander off into this musical biographical space, um, and I love that. I love um, man Ben Vereen in all that jazz. He should have been in so many more movies. He's just he's sex on a stick. He's great. Oh my god! No, my um, Aaron, my partner was like, I need more. I need men to be sexy like that again and I was like yes like absolutely but you're so right we actually we so we watched all that jazz and then we rewatched the ending like yesterday because it is just it's so good it's so good and it's so weird and like that's the 
to me, that's the best type of filmmaking where it's just like you see. You just get to see their train of thought and you see that they got to make the final decision and got to make what they wanted to make. And you're just like. It's so cool and it's so vulnerable and it's so frustrating that you don't get to see that that often, especially now, I feel like in films right now, like indie films, totally um, on like the circuits, totally. But like the things that hit that are released in like every city, I just don't feel that way anymore. And I wanted to ask you, and I don't know if this is an actual question you can answer and it's totally fine if you can't. Like, do you have an all time favorite movie? Yeah, my go to answer is WR Mysteries of the Organism. I think you would really like it, actually. I have not heard of this. What is it called again? WR, WR, WR Mysteries of the Organism. Okay. Um, it's this Yugoslavian, I think you could call it, there are parts of it that are satire, but um, it's like a very dark comedy from the 70s and it's, um, what I love about it is it's kind of a, it's a film that doesn't, it doesn't have a story, but it has a subject. And the subject is the life and work of this um, psychologist, Wilhelm Reich. And he had these ideas about social structure and, and fascism because he was, he was persecuted first by the Nazis and then he was persecuted here in the U.S. by anti-communists. And he also had a lot of theories about sex and sexual energy. And he built this, um, this device, this box called the orgone chamber, because he thought that um, people emitted important sexual energy all the time. And we were losing our sexual energy. It's just, you know, kind of like coming off of us like heat. So if we get inside these orgone chambers, then the you know, if they're rated, made of the right materials, our sexual energy will come back to us. You know, it'll be reflected off the walls, and it can we can kind of recharge like a battery with our sexual energy, and we'll just feel a lot better, and our problems will be solved. And apparently, this was uh, an idea so anathema to the Eisenhower government that they basically ruined his life when he came here as a refugee. Um, they literally burned all of his books. They took them all out of the publisher and our bookstores and they, they burned them. And that was kind of what gave him a breakdown and killed him. And so this film, none of this is in the film. It is, these are the ideas behind the film. And then there are documentary performance art, which sounds stupid, but it isn't. And, <laughs> um, and satire and all sorts of, really dark, wonderful moments throughout the film and all these different genres and all these different characters that all come off of this idea and reflect on Wilhelm Reich's ideas. And I don't know, I would love, I don't know how I would do that, but I would love to do something like it. Actually, when I was in film school, I loved that idea so much. And I also loved Jean-Claude Van Damme so much that I combined those two movies and my last student film was a love letter to Jean-Claude Van Damme movies in the style of WR Mysteries of the Organism. Oh my God. I love this so much. Did you feel like um, film school prepared you adequately for the actual like film industry? I say this as someone with like a journalism major and I don't feel... Like it prepared me at all for what it's like to be a few, like a freelance journalist when I was, I'm not really anymore. I think that, you know, in some ways it prepares you. Um, 
I think, I mean, the, the question is, is like, you know, whether, whether anybody in their twenties can benefit from film school. I'm saying in their twenties, cause I'm trying to like say that it doesn't matter whether it's undergraduate or graduate school. Um, when you're in your twenties, you're still growing into who you are as a person. You're still like figuring out really basic social interactions. And I feel like my peers were so distracted by figuring out the human stuff, the stuff that is like the makings of the, you know, um, Felicity or the OC, like this kind of like just normal growing into the human being you are kind of thing that whatever they would have given us at in film school, I don't know how well it would have been absorbed, but I think, but nonetheless, I mean, it was a very, like, it, it, it had a summer camp feel to it. And it was a kind of summer camp level also of, of filmmaking um, and, and, and things that you need to get through in order to be a filmmaker on the other side, where you feel like you're kind of an imposter. You feel like you're like, okay, I'm, I don't really feel like a director. I feel like somebody who is, who, who is still in school and I'm just kind of, you know, play acting all these things. So it was useful to get through that, although you never stop feeling that way on set. I think <laughs> everybody has imposter syndrome. You know, did they prepare us for for the for the nitty gritty in the sense of like the barriers to entry that you know for for all filmmakers, you know, regardless of gender or race? Um, no, but I don't think they could have told us about that. I think that's something that you just have to experience. That makes a lot of sense. Um, you touched upon imposter syndrome, uh, and what what would you say is your biggest insecurity when you are on set uh, versus offset? Yeah, well, versus I think offset, I have this paranoia that all my friends hate me and that they're mad at me, and oh, no. like if somebody like does respond to a text, I'm like, oh god, they're so mad at me. What did I do? I can't I can't think of it. Like, oh, why are why is this going on? Like, did they hear something? Um, Whereas on set, I'm insecure about other things, but I really care less if people hate me because I know I'm not there to be liked. I'm there to, to get the job done. And of course, like, I do want my sets to feel like a party. I want everybody to really enjoy themselves and work really hard. But also if, you know, I'm not somebody's favorite person on the set, that's fucking fine. That's not the job. Yeah. In, in real life, um, I feel the the compulsion to be more likable. I feel the, the constrictions of, of conformism more, even though I'm always, I think my friends like definitely don't realize that they always think that I'm confrontational and a rabble rouser and just a contrarian and a shit stirrer. But it makes me paranoid too, because I'm always worried that I'm going too far and that people won't love me anymore. I want to push people I want to push people really hard and then have them still love me because that would make me feel really good that I, you know, that they loved me in spite of how hard I was pushing. Uh, but, you know, I'm afraid of crossing that line, but I'll always keep trying. You're so right, too, because like that reminded me of like, I'm totally the same way. I'm totally a people pleaser, want everyone to love me. Boundaries are hard. 
But when I'm on stage or when I am uh, producing or being a tour manager, it none of that matters because it's like you said, like there's a job to be done. And it's almost like you get to put on this like costume and people have to take you seriously. And it just it erases the fact that you have a vagina, that you are a woman all of a sudden. Um, like as people that I tour with are like, yeah, you have like a producer voice. When you are producing, all of a sudden, like, I don't say like all of a sudden. My voice just gets completely different. Whereas, like, if I'm on a podcast, uh, I have much of, like, a valley girl and I'm just way more chill and and like is here in every other word. Uh, because you're still kind of trying to be, like, that likable person, that likable woman that can, like, be all the things. Um and I'm just realizing now, not being on stage for so long, because it's been about a year now because uh, of COVID, it's just like, fuck, you miss that costume of like that power that comes with it. Um, I'm assuming you're still making right now because I know people are figuring it out in, in like L.A. And all the TV shows are still making in COVID. Just a lot of the things up your nose to make sure everyone's OK. But did you feel anything like that when uh, things kind of like shit hit the fan at first and all of a sudden everything was in flux? Well. The things that I work in, in the budget range, I think it's there, it's become harder to make because they, you know, the budgets were tight to begin with. And then they're, then they have to deal with either, you know, setting aside, you know, 10% or, or more of that budget to um, not just testing, but also insurance and things like that. It's really hard to get insurance for indies. Um, or trying to raise more money and then having to convince an investor that, you know, uh, let's say like a $1 million film, you know, that might make its money back could maybe make its money back at 1.3, you know, and it's just, it's, um, it's very difficult. So I haven't been back on set, um, since, since the start of the pandemic. Um, I've been, I've been writing and I've been pitching. I do. I do miss it. I'm, I love being on set. I miss working with actors. That's definitely one of the main joys of, of why I do what I do. And it's a bummer. It's, it definitely feels like you're working in a vacuum, just writing, but you know what? I'm used to it. So I think that it's been harder on like a social level, not on a, I think on a professional level, it's felt a little, it's felt stifling um not so much lately because we're coming out with the film and it has kept me busy and I feel like things are happening um but before last year it was a lot harder you know um not getting to travel with the film because I was really looking forward to that um and then at the same time I'd also just gone through a breakup and so the idea you know dating in the COVID age is impossible and also not seeing friends that is all yeah the same things that everybody else says it sucks yeah have you i've started to have um dreams about parties or social gatherings now like daily but covid is still existing in the dream so like you're having a party you're mad that the mixers are gone but also this is a real dream i had my friend tim didn't tell us his friend Melton had COVID and we were in that house. Uh, and so I wake up being like mad at something that never happened. And then also being like, oh, my God, I just miss a party. Like, I just miss 
I miss being socially awkward uh, around people, uh, around like the mixer table. Um, yeah, that was just me, my long winded way being like, yeah, I just miss socializing. And I'm starting to really like January was really weird. It's like it was very sad over here in New York because it was like cold and you can't do anything. I don't know how you guys are doing in L.A. because you guys um, you guys have the beach. I'm very jealous of that. You know, um LA beaches like you they're not the ones that are like the closest to the city are not ones that you could really like swim in there um you have to either go north or south to like get in somewhere in that you can comfortably do that because um it has something to do with like the the slope of where like the sand meets the water, but like the waves just like hit really hard and you just, you just cannot go into the water, like around, around Malibu without personally for me getting like swept off my feet, thrown back into the sand and then having so much sand inside my swimsuit that looks like I shit my pants. And I have to like crawl back into the water and like empty out the bottom of my swimsuit, which is full of, like a bowling ball worth of sand. Oh no. So I don't love going to the beach. I love seeing <laughs> the beach, but I like, I don't, I don't like going to the beach around here. It's not when I lived in New York, uh, uh, the summers that we had going together to Brighton beach, eating, buying all the junk food from like the, the Russian uh, concession stand and eating it in the sand and then fucking falling asleep <laughs> and on the beach is so fucking great. Those are my favorite beach memories. Brian beach is, uh, it's, it's killer and Rockaways. Uh, we all are very much missing it right now because it's sa- like, it's saved everyone's sanity this summer. Cause I don't know if you saw, but Bill de Blasio, the mayor was like, Oh no, no, no. Uh, the, the beaches will not be open to the public in the summer during COVID. And everyone was like, there's no way you can do that. Like, it's a natural way to, like, cool down. Like, you cannot take that away from people. And so then he was like, all right, there's going to be, like, all these rules. And then finally, like, May came and he was like, just go. Just go. And it was fine. And everyone was fine. And it was okay. And, like, cases were low. But I truly feel like it saved my sanity. I'm just having those beaches. And some of my – they're, like, some of my favorite beaches ever, too. And you – I feel like – I didn't even know about the beaches until like four years in of living in New York City because I lived in Harlem and I had no clue if you just kept going on the F train, all of a sudden here's Coney Island. Here's all these fun things and the Russian bars, which it's like they're speaking like legit full on Russian 24 seven and they don't actually like you because you're I not love Russian, that. But I love that. It's so great. I love that character. The Russian men playing dominoes in the those little concrete gazebos all over the place. There's there's no character like that to to the beaches out here. And I'm not saying that as a person who's like, oh, you know, L.A. is not as good as New York. I obviously prefer L.A. to New York because I live here and I'm really happy here and I'm going to live here for the rest of my life. Um, but I, I will say that counterintuitively, I think the beaches in New York are better than the beaches <laughs> in Southern California. Aren't and, the beaches in, in um, isn't the ocean like super, super cold too? the Pacific? No, it's not that bad. I also, but I love, um, I love cold water. I love that kind of bracing thing. I love to go to the like Korean spa back in the day. Um, there's a really cool Korean spa in 
K-Town that's open 24 hours called We Spa. And they have like two jacuzzis, one that's hot and one that's super hot. And then also a cold pool that is like frigid. And I love to jump between the super hot jacuzzi and the frigid pool. Though I'm sure it is a shock on the heart and it is weakening it, but it is so, it feels so good. Um, I don't do drugs. So I like look for like the weirdest ways to like get a high. Like I, um, I always overload, um, wasabi with my sushi. Like it's always like, I mix, I mix the soy sauce and the, and the, and the wasabi and it's like one tenth soy sauce, nine tenths wasabi. And then I just like feel it in my sinus passages and it feels so good. I I, honestly, okay. I did cocaine once and I was so (laughs) disappointed because it was not as good as wasabi. I was like, this feels like pepper in the back of my throat. And I, feel nothing um oh, yeah, and you get like the drips and just like slowly drips down your throat maybe i did i did it <laughs> once and it was so underwhelming i was like oh fuck this wasabi is the real cocaine i actually had a friend snort wasabi while they were very drunk and young and they were like kind of goaded into it and they immediately vomited and i was just it that moment stuck with 16 year old me and i was like i'm never I'm never fucking with wasabi. So you're fearless. Thank you. (laughs) Okay, cool. Um, Will will people be able to access I Blame Society soon? Yes. So it's in virtual theaters right now, um, but it'll be on VOD on February 12th. So oh my god, a perfect Valentine's Day weekend. You can um, pre-order it on iTunes or just add it to your Amazon watch list so you know that it's coming your way. They'll be make it really easy to keep track of. And that's it. Awesome. Thank you. Anytime. Bye, guys. Bye. Don't you just want to fucking download it right now? Download it right now, okay? And go tell all your friends how great it is. Um, I definitely think uh, women are going to just eat this up uh, in all the good ways. Uh, I Blame Society, available on demand and cable on demand everywhere on February 12th. And currently, you want to see it before February 12th uh, in virtual theaters across the country. Um, Thank you again, Jillian, for sitting down with me. And thank you guys for listening. And we will be back uh next week rate like subscribe masturbate wash your hands pee after you masturbate and or have sex i feel like people forget that you should also solo sex counts when you should pee why why am i bringing this up now i don't know okay i love you guys bye